0: Hello and welcome back to Ambiance Podcast, my name is Levi, I'm your host. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to address the absence of episodes in the last month. We had some pretty amazing creatives lined up for you guys, but unfortunately with COVID-19 and the crisis that we're facing, we weren't able to meet face-to-face with these creatives. So those episodes are going to be airing later down the line, but... We still wanted to find a way to produce some episodes for those of you who are currently quarantined in your homes right now and are maybe looking for some inspiration. So we decided to move forward with our very first virtual podcast, which is going to be airing in this episode. And hopefully we have some more coming in the near future, but we were lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Joshua Bennett, who is an assistant professor of English and creative writing over at Dartmouth College. He's also an author. He released his very first book back in 2016, titled The Sobbing School, which was a national poetry series selection and a finalist for the NAACP Image Award. Dr. Bennett holds a PhD in English from Princeton University, an MA in Theater and Performance Studies from the University of Warwick, And Dr. Bennett has even performed at the White House for President Barack Obama's evening of poetry and music, which is pretty amazing. He has a lot of achievements, and he definitely dropped a lot of of knowledge on us in this episode, which you guys are going to hear coming up pretty soon. So with that being said, let's get into it. This is episode 29 of Ambiance Podcast with Dr. Joshua Bennett. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Perfect. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Awesome. Thank you uh, so much again for doing this. First and foremost, I just have to say, yeah, thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast. I'm definitely a fan of your work. I've been following your journey since the Brave New Voices uh, days. Wow. Yeah, I, I think I was in middle school around that time. and. My literature teacher was putting on that whole series. And then that's when I kind of got glued to your journey as well as some of the other contestants. And mm. I must say it's like it's been an absolute inspiration to see your journey and where it's led you to now as an assistant professor of, you know, English and creative writing over at Dartmouth College and author of the Sobbing School mm. and one of the most accomplished poets of our generation, um, at least that I, I would think. Wow. Yeah, so Dr. Ben, I could probably go on all day about listing your accomplishments, but I know you're a busy man, so I just want to get straight into it. I have a lot to pick your mind on. Are you, are you in uh, New Hampshire right now, or are you over in New York?
1: Yeah, so I'm, well, first, thank you for having me on and for that uh, exceedingly generous intro, man. I mean, to me, it's, it's always a miracle when you meet somebody that's had any experience with your art, so to know that it meant something you means a lot. Uh, I'm checking in from Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where I currently live with my fiancé and our family dog, Apollo, who's in the next room. Apollo. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apollo 5
0: is his name. What what made you come up with that name? So part of why
1: he's Apollo 5 is that he's fifth in the list of meaningful Apollos in my life. So we have Mm. sort of Apollo, the Greek god, uh, Apollo Creed. Uh, there's the Apollo Space shuttle, of course, and then uh Apollo the theater in harlem uh, wow. so i'm f- I'm from New York, and the Apollo theater was a big part of my upbringing, so I figured he would be the fifth Apollo in my life Apollo five
0: no, that makes sense that's that's definitely a lot of thought that went into that to that name <laughs> oh thanks we we yes. try, man we try over here <laughs> of course, yeah, um, how are things over there in uh in Boston right now for with everything that's going on? <sighs>
1: radically different you know uh in so many different ways everyone in my neighborhood uh, is masked you know so that that's its own thing apollo's a vizla so he's a sporting dog requires a lot of exercise and even i mean this is sort of a small thing but even just being a dog owner usually you know your dogs will play and you'll speak to people and you can't really do that anymore so even when i take right. him to the woods near the house there's social distancing happening where the dogs have a kind of proximity that's that's foreclosed uh, for their human companions. So that's wow. that's been interesting. It's, you know, we gotta wait online six feet apart when you go to the supermarket, all that kind of stuff. It's really radically changed the way I move uh, throughout each day. So I spent most of the day, honestly, just in the house it is fine i mean I, I paid for it you know so uh, every month i guess i'm investing in, in trying to make sure i can stay here but it's surreal it's yeah surreal yeah for sure.
0: i i feel that for sure I've, i feel like i'm definitely enjoying every penny worth of rent yes. that i'm paying right now right yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah it's finally <laughs> worthwhile
0: exactly you know? yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely a lot of adjustments that are being made. For me as well, I live over in downtown Los Angeles and I've wow. never seen anything like this before. It's like apocalypto out of a movie or something like that. But yeah. what are you doing right now to kind of stay creative? I know for me at least, it's hard to to be inspired right now uh, creatively. Yeah. So what are you what are you doing to stay inspired creatively?
1: Yeah, I was reading as much as humanly possible. So I've been just turning to both poets that have always been resources for me, people like Amé uh Evie mm. Shockley, William Matthews, Hayes, Araceli Spermet, really going back to that work. In addition to just trying to write a lot of new poems and just trying to get creative. So I'm writing a novel now. I mean, I've just really tried to step outside of the box um, and work in forms that are unfamiliar to me, just as a way of really keeping my mind sort of sharp in this period um okay besides that mostly just checking in with friends you know i find that when i have writing writer's block what helps me the most is really just to try to get back to living and so since i can't hang out with anybody i just try to call friends talk to them for a couple hours uh and then do my best to let that inspire the work
0: nice yeah i can definitely relate to that i've had a lot of conversations caught up with old friends and this is a perfect time to do it and it's it's have you have you felt that it's kind of reignited some old relationships that you haven't haven't had a chance to uh, previously
1: for sure there are friends i've had since my early 20s where we've spoken more i mean it's kind of surreal actually now that i'm i'm actually having to say it out loud but we've Mm -hmm. spoken more during the quarantine than we did for the entirety of maybe that uh eight or nine or even ten year period wow right like folks yeah i mean especially for my Friends that are academics or or people that now are working from home in a very different way, especially in those professions where being in the room is really important, right? It's it's kind of key to what we do. I've had to check in with those people and share best practices and figure out what does it even mean to teach via Zoom and feel like I'm doing something meaningful? What is checking in on students? Uh, whose parents are struggling people whose parents are losing their jobs people who maybe were admitted to graduate programs and those offers got rescinded what does it mean to to sort of be an educator right now and i think that's helped me check in at least with old friends in the profession but certainly with family too i mean my my family my, my father's 70 years old my mother's around the same age checking in with them one to make sure they're staying in the house But also just because we got a lot more time on our hands where we're still. Nobody's going to yoga right now outside the house. Uh, I'm not on the road. You know, all my spring tour dates got canceled, you know. So it's forcing me to really be still and and be a part of my family in a different way.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like a blessing in disguise, right? You're you're Mm. able to repair certain uh, aspects of your life and attend to them where you weren't able to previously. So it's awesome that you're you're making the effort to do those things because I feel like a lot of people – may um kind of just be taking this time to relax or um wow. you know just i don't want to say waste their time but I, I just feel like it's it's great to see that you're being productive with it
1: yeah i mean in so many ways too levi i mean if we're gonna have a conversation we might as well have an open one i mean yeah. i think too i'm comfortable sharing with you that uh my grandmother passed
0: um, oh i'm so sorry to weeks. hear that
1: yeah thank you thank you for that and um So I'm actually also just going through a different phase of life right now. Like realizing that one, I'm I'm part of a larger human community where a lot of us are grieving right now. Yeah. Where a lot of us and not, not all even grieving people, right? Like I'm grieving this very, this woman that was absolutely central to the trajectory of my life. But there are people that are grieving dreams right now. right? People that have uh, lost jobs or lost relationships or, we're right on the cusp of things really turning around, and then everything happened with with covid nineteen and, and there's their world blew up you know so one it was one of the first times in a long time I realized I'm one person of billions, many of us on planet Earth are going through this thing right now to mm-hmm. differing degrees and have to figure out how to deal with it, so yeah, in so many ways, it really feels like I didn't really have a choice, you know, like that happened with my grandmother, then a couple of my cousins uh we were sick, got sick with the virus. Oh, and wow. then my, my uncle got sick and we had to find an aide to take care of him. And then I had these new books coming out. So trying right. to find ways to talk about a book of theory or a book of poems in a pandemic, right? Because yeah. you also, I think for a lot of us, you're having a crisis of identity, right? Yes. A- around what, no matter 100%. what you do, if you're a creative 100%. person, you're like, okay, but People are losing their jobs, people are dying, people are getting sick and suffering. How does my work uh, speak to that? If it doesn't speak to that specific situation, why does my work matter? And not even just mm. to be able to advertise it or anything, but for yourself. I really had to check in with myself and a lot of my friends at least that are artists of good conscience, we had to take a step back and say, wow, well, why does this 200 page book I wrote matter? Well, what is it saying? Um, to people it's made us accountable to each other again in a different way and i and i do hope that that's part of what we learn from catastrophe right especially a catastrophe of this scale how are we accountable to one another and how can we better take care of one another because what the virus is exacerbating is that a lot of people have fallen through the cracks uh, of our social safety net especially here in the united states like the the specific communities where people are the hardest hit but also just I think there has to be a real kind of philosophical revolution where we rethink what it means to be a citizenry and uh, are able to recommit to saying people need better safety nets than this, than what we have right now. Yeah. People should be protected.
0: It is, it is exposing a lot of flaws that are in the system right now. That is definitely true. And that's a really interesting perspective that you just put on it right now. Um, You're kind of finding ways that where you can can contribute your art to society. Is that what you're trying Mm -hmm. to
1: say? I'm trying. You know, I gave a reading on, on Zoom, actually. Uh, maybe <laughs> last week. Yeah, I think last week I had a reading on Zoom, which wasn't even just my poems. So I also just read poems that mean a lot to me. and uh, mm-hmm. po- From poets, I think people should be checking out in this time, um, which is complicated again. Like, this is such a, a heavy, hard-hitting time. And I'm recommending poems to people, but I'm almost not sure what else would be my job right now.
0: Yeah, like, so yeah. So say, like,
1: actually, well, My whole life is built around not just producing literature, but teaching it. So I have to believe that if you have the time or space to commit to the literary world right now, you should find ways to read things that feed your soul, feed your heart, feed your mind, uh, and it'll make you a more equipped human being to deal with what's ahead. So I've been trying to contribute that as best I can, trying to do a better job with checking in again, just with my students and my friends and family, because it's, it's these things aren't minor, right? These are right. people that ha- are having graduations, marriages canceled, people that, not marriages, rather weddings canceled, yeah. um, people that can't be present for the birth of their children. I mean, all sorts it's of crazy. life events that people can't attend right now. And I think we have to be attentive to that as well. I know we might be tempted to say, well, get over it. All this other very serious suffering is is going on. And I understand that. But at the same time, I'm not going to say that to a 21-year-old who dreamed their whole life of their college graduation yeah. or someone that's wanted to be a mother or father for their entire life, and now they don't get to share that pivotal moment with someone that they, they love. That, yeah. that, that's another kind of catastrophe.
0: Definitely. And you empathize with it, I feel like, because you think back to when you graduated, right? And you just mm-hmm. think, what if for I sure. had that moment missing in my life? And right. I, know, I know you gave that graduation speech, right? So can you yeah. like, think about if you weren't able to do something like that? And it's, I think it's just crazy because nobody was prepared for this, right? And there's no way you could have been prepared for it. So it's it's just a big adjustment period for everyone in the world. And yeah. yeah.
1: No, that's right. I mean, one of my friends and colleagues, we were on the phone the other day and she was saying she's been so surprised by what she called the buoyancies in mm. the people she knows, right? The way that people were experiencing this catastrophe, like you said, um, both in some ways unprecedented right though pandemics are of course not unprecedented this scale of pandemic in our interconnected world right where we're even seeing the markets react to the the speed of the information that spread right that that is unprecedented the way people have been able nonetheless to be resilient in the midst of it right people at the drop of the hat had to say all right well our wedding's canceled so we're going to go on a rooftop and we're gonna call a minister or a friend, they're gonna stand six feet from us and we're just gonna say our vows, right? There's not sure. gonna be a DJ, not gonna be a party, but in the human spirit, we're gonna figure this out. I think that to me has been a cause for optimism, uh, to yeah. be honest, you know, is that people really have somehow dug deep. My, my grandmother's funeral, I, I watched it via Zoom. Wow. I, helped, I helped organize it over the telephone with my big wow. sister and my mother. And we had to create a text chain to ask people to donate. And then in the building itself, there couldn't be more than 10 people spread apart across the chapel at a time. So people also had to rotate out of my grandmother's funeral service. Um, but nonetheless, we had it. Right, we honored yeah. her life, and I'm hoping in the summer we could have a much bigger memorial. Right, but yeah. even just the the speed with which people realized that that was their new reality, and that nonetheless we had to carry through that kind of ceremony because burying each other is something human beings do. Yeah, um, you know, marriage vows, these kind of ceremonies—they're important to who we are as a species, and so that yeah. that has been heartening for me to see that.
0: It's it's not like you can just wait to grieve until this is over right you I mean no you can't you can't wait for something like that since since this is kind of heavy on your heart i kind of wanted wanted you to speak on it um yeah. how much of an impact did your grandma grandmother have um on your upbringing
1: so much uh in so many different ways so she actually owned uh at one point three different hair salons in Harlem. Wow. um and i would go to one of her salons after school and I would get a dollar every time I could uh, spell a word that was three syllables or longer. So mm. words like uh, recalcitrant, magnanimous, loquacious, right?
0: How old and are you when this uh, was? I was
1: happened? little. I was five or six. Wow. I was a little. Yeah, yeah. I was a little kid. And uh, I just remember even then having that experience of, of seeing people celebrate uh, eloquence and in a relationship to the study of, of language, right? The study of, of uh of the English language of literature and vocabulary. So my grandmother was absolutely instrumental in that. She always recited poems from memory, right? And this is long before I'd ever seen spoken word, right? And any, right. I'd never seen a poetry slam or anything like that. But when I was a little kid, we would have Christmas at my grandmother's apartment in the Bronx every year. And she would recite, you know, these old poems like Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, these kind of early 20th century, often Harlem Renaissance poets off the top of her head. She was from, Wilmington, North Carolina, and was a sharecropper as a little girl and a teenager. It's where she met my grandfather, whose name was actually Levi. Uh, they met, wow. yeah. It's kind of incredible. They, it's a family name. So as soon as I saw your email, I was like, all right, we're gonna do this. <laughs> uh, they, they met in a strawberry field, you know, and came up north together. And so, even the fact that I teach uh, African American literature, especially with a focus on the environment, mm-hmm. I think so much of that is coming from that history of people that had this relationship to the land that of course was fraught, right? It was, it was circumscribed by uh, extraction and theft like the, the crops my grandmother was picking. She was not getting paid properly, right? For that labor. And somehow in the midst of that, she still a- was able to fall in love um, and develop a relationship to the land that wasn't just traumatic. And that taught right. me something, you know, that no matter the context or environment you grow up in, they really can't kill your imagination.
0: Do you you think, do you think the reason like your relationship with your grandma and your relationship to what you just explained, it gives you a certain spark of passion to teaching about it?
1: A hundred percent. I just believe literature matters, right? I believe poetry matters. I think expression is absolutely key. And if I didn't, I would do something else, which I try Mm -hmm. not to say too much in the classroom, but I really feel that way, man. Like I, I could have done a lot of things. I could have become a preacher, a lawyer. I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was a little boy. Uh, And I I love being a professor, but I I don't think it's the only thing I'm good at. And it's not the only thing I've ever loved. The reason I made the choice to do this was I believed that having good teachers changed my life. Mm -hmm. I think I would have been a very different kind of person if specific teachers that I remember by name had not intervened in my life given me specific books and essays and poems that changed the way I thought about what the world was and who I could be in it right so I'm super passionate about it because I I just think it matters I was a really angry kid spoken word gave me this incredible outlet to express myself uh to make friends I also didn't know how to make friends for a lot of my life poetry slam just gave me something to talk about with people and um I'm immensely thankful for that
0: yeah, you actually just took my next question out of my mouth. I was going to ask you, yeah. you know, growing up in an underfunded public school system in Yonkers, New York, it definitely could have been easy for you to go another route, right? But sure. yeah, all of those things that you just stated kind of helped you stay focused, right? Um, and stay mm-hmm. on path. And uh, you had people in your life that obviously had a big, a huge impact on you, right?
1: Yeah, for Sure. A hundred percent. My sixth grade math teacher, Miss Riley. Shout out Miss <laughs> Riley. Yeah, shout out to her in particular. You know, she signed me up for this uh, summer program called Summer Bridge, which is at Riverdale Country Schools, a private school in Riverdale, New York. And I went to school during the summer when I was 11 years old, 12 years old, 13 years old, to prepare to take an entrance exam to end up in an independent school for high school, uh, Rye Country Day School, which changed again, changed the trajectory in my life. But yeah, I could have gone in a bunch of different ways. It was teachers, it was my family, it was mentors, and also friends who yeah. helped me believe it was okay to be smart. Um, and this—I don't know that this is a popular opinion necessarily—but even my bullies, like people that were quite cruel to me on the one hand, I think nonetheless, how to say this? I think seeing the pain, because I think even then I had a sense that they were being really. Mean, (laughs) frankly, that was the language I used when I was 11, so it's the language I'll use now. I was like, I think you're being really mean because you're in a lot of pain right now, and I think even that experience really taught me something. I was like, okay, I don't think you're inherently evil, like, we're all 11 years old, and it's my sense from even the little bit of information I have about you, um, that you're really hurting right now, and that's that's part of the way you treat me, the way I see you treat other students, the way I even see you treat teachers, um, and so. That taught me something as a young person growing up in that environment, which was often quite literally violent. I mean, and this is this is tough because I hear people talk about violence a lot now, rhetorical violence. And of course, like language can be violent. But I think as someone who grew up seeing people get knocked in the head with in, with bottles and jumped and stuff, like there are levels to violence. Yeah. So seeing that as a kid, it, it taught me that... Uh, <laughs> when we talk about violence we have to be very clear about what most people in the world mean by violence and what they live through um and it taught me to have real empathy for people and to understand what mercy was
0: from an extremely young age as well too like that's that's very mature thinking to have at that young of an age i i'm in my mid-20s now and i think in my early 20s is when i started to realize um that people who do inflict pain on others are the ones that are feeling pain themselves. And that's crazy that you started to realize that when you were that young of an age, that's pretty next level thinking.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um, A lot of that's from family too. You know, my father's a veteran and I was diagnosed with PTSD. And I think even seeing that, right. Like he fought in Vietnam when he was a 17 year old boy, you know, and
0: your grandparents can have, like, a movie written on there. Written about yeah, them, so. my
1: grandparents, my parents. Like, it's – my dad in particular is a textbook. I mean, my dad integrated mm-hmm. his high school. His high school was, uh, was segregated in Birmingham, wow. Alabama. He was the first black student to attend and graduate from his high school. Then, because his little brother, my uncle, who's still alive, he's a, he's a minister uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Hi, hi Uncle Stanley. Um, and when mm-hmm. he wanted to – enlist in the Vietnam War, and the recruiter told them that they wanted to take two sons from the same family. So my father enlisted to keep my uncle from having to go, right? Wow. And of course, you know, they sent Ultimately. them both, right? Right. And th- but this is as a seventeen-year-old kid. Do you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. He was willing to lay down his life for his brother, and then of course, as his son, I saw the effects of not just that war, but living through Jim Crow and coming back mm-hmm. from Vietnam and not having a culture here in the States that really celebrated many of those men, right. That had made that, that incredible sacrifice. Right. And so I knew from an early age that people that go through intense pain and abuse, they wear it often. Right. Mm -hmm. Now I think as an adult with his own sort of trauma and and traumatic experiences, I know that it's still my responsibility to go to therapy, to exercise, to do the things I need to do. So I don't, you know, Spread that. Far Become and wide. one of those
0: people that inflicts the pain on others.
1: Right, but little kids don't know that, right?
0: Yeah,
1: I'm. I'm. I didn't grow up really in an abusive environment. Like my, my parents, you know, struggle with various things. But seeing what a lot of my peers went through, I went through nothing like that. My parents told me they loved me. They told me I was smart. I had books, and I didn't have a lot of clothes because we didn't have a lot of money. But um, people invested in me. I believed that I deserved to to live and to flourish. And that's not something that um, one should take for granted because not everyone grows up in that kind of environment.
0: Definitely. So you have, I know that you have three disabled siblings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how much of an impact did that have on your upbringing? I know that you had a lot of poems um, dedicated to your siblings. So yeah. it, was that your way of kind of giving them a voice?
1: Mm. Not so much giving them a voice as trying to paint uh, a robust picture. Okay. of what growing up in that environment taught me about the world, right? Which is that there are many people with disabilities on planet Earth, right? That in many ways, I mean, so I started my graduate research as someone in the field of disability studies, and some of the language they use in that field is that people with disabilities are the largest minority in the United States, for instance, mm. right? And that all of us, if we live long enough, will eventually become disabled, right? True, like our very vision, true. Vision will change, hearing will change, uh, your ability to, to walk will change, right? Like our bodies are are dynamic, right? The human brain is dynamic. So my poem about my little brother uh, Levi, for instance, right? Right. Um, that poem took me ten years to write because he was diagnosed as uh, being on the autism spectrum when he was three years old, but it took me until you know a decade later to write that poem because I wanted to have what felt like the right language to to describe the feeling, right? Which right. Which was which was largely not that um. That I lost something necessarily, right? But the idea that I knew I lived in a world where people would map terrible things on him when they saw him or wouldn't be patient with him, right? Or would right. see themselves as being patient with him when he was actually being patient with them. So that that experience just taught me a great deal. You know, my older brother's schizophrenia diagnosis like that, that became apparent after he was incarcerated as a teenager, right? So also when I was young, I started making those connections between whatever our jail and prison system was, and the state of mental health in this country, right?
0: Right. Which if you
1: look at the statistics, those are intimately connected, right? Both people that are diagnosed as having mental health issues and then go into prison, but also people who develop those kind of conditions and have them exacerbated by being incarcerated, right? So again, just like where we began this conversation, you have to think about these things as interconnected. And I think growing up in a family with multiple people with disabilities um, pushed me, even as a very young person, to think, okay, I can't take certain categories for granted. And we need to be thinking about class, gender, race, disability, all of these things at the same time when we talk about human experience.
0: Definitely. I, I can definitely relate to to that because I have an uncle who has Down syndrome and we were very close growing up and it just sucked to see how others would treat him, you know, in public yeah. areas. There would be just people that would make senseless, uh, remarks all the time and, uh, bully him and it make, it makes you more, gives you more empathy towards people who have disabilities, um, mm-hmm. at a young age. And it, it take, it takes you throughout the rest of your life, you know? And, uh, yeah, I think that does definitely have a huge impact on the person that you are today. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, did you, did you, so actually, yeah, that transitions well into my next question. Did you sure. ever, um, envision you becoming the man you are today with all that you've accomplished. Did you no. did you always have like a grandmaster plan for yourself? <laughs>
1: That's a good <laughs> question. I, I did not. I did not always have a grandmaster plan, I promise. When I was in high school I was just trying to graduate high school you know. Um,
0: right.
1: I didn't to be honest, Levi, I didn't even have a lot of the language for the stuff I'm doing now. Like I didn't know any professors right. when I was a kid. I didn't know what a professor was until I was 17 years old and someone gave me a copy of the cornell west book race matters i read the book i turned it over and i saw that he was a professor of african-american studies at princeton right all i knew about princeton at the time was that uh uncle phil from the fresh prince went there right that was all i knew about princeton right i'd never heard of african-american studies and at that moment i realized that of course i knew what college was right like i was in the process of applying to colleges but I'd never thought about the process through which one becomes a professor or what professors actually do besides teach on college campuses, right? So right. I figured out, well, clearly they write books, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's one thing they do. But this guy Cornell West, it seemed like had a whole kind of public project. He was giving speeches and lectures and traveling the world and talking to rappers, you know, about their relationship to language. And so part of why I think it was hard for me at the time to imagine some of what I'm doing now is I didn't know anyone that had ever done it. I didn't know anyone that had been a spoken word poet, but also published books and was also a a professor. You know, I, I had no idea what what that would look like. And honestly, I'm really thankful for that. You know, I'm I'm thankful that my parents were working class people who both worked for the post office. You know, uh, my father explicitly, when he would drop me at school, would say, "I go to this job which I don't like, so you can have." options is what he said. Right? Wow. So you can have choices. Um, and I'm really thankful to have parents who allowed me to be something they'd never seen. I think that's got to be really hard. Right? I yeah. told my mother I wanted to be a poet. She looked at me like I would said, I want to grow up and be a dragon. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was weird fantasy stuff. And then she got to go to the White House. So she thought that was, you know, maybe this is a solid maybe point. Once she <laughs> met, met Michelle Obama, she was like, all right, I'm going to ease up on the kid." And uh, so, no, I, I never really had it mapped out, and I'm exceedingly thankful, you know, that a lot of this has come together. Um, I've worked hard, but so much of it is just, you know, for me, grace, you know, uh, the grace of God and the, the thoughtfulness of everyday people, you know, people that watch my videos. I'm so yeah. shocked by that. People that watch my videos, people that come to shows, people that buy books. I genuinely don't take that for granted. I don't want it to seem uh, performative. It's not like, oh shucks, you guys like me. It really is mind-blowing to me that people take the time to embrace the art of a person they've never met. That that will never cease to be incredible to me. I've been performing since, really since I was four years old, but in terms of professionally, since I was 19 years old, right? I've been on the road for over a decade and every time I have a performance, it blows my mind to see people in the seats you know
0: with with that being said, um, as somebody who used to be fearful of public speaking myself <clears> i <throat> yeah. I overcame that um, at a certain point in my life. Um, did you ever feel fear, fearful of being of public speaking, and if so, how did you overcome that fear to become the the maestro of public speaking that you are today. Oh wow.
1: <laughs> Levi, we need you to do a blurb on one of my
0: books. This, this is great. You're giving <laughs> got me you. a lot
1: of, you're giving me great quotables today. I got still. I'm still afraid of public speaking. Really? Yeah. Even when I talk to high school students, I tell them that all the time. Uh, before I give a lecture in class, before I perform, before I give a speech, I still feel the... And it's not just butterflies. They're bigger than that. They're mockingbirds or something. I mean, I wow. I really go through it uh, every time <laughs> I perform. But when I'm in the moment of performance, I feel free, right? Which I think is just part of how it goes, that the nervousness is because I care a lot about what I'm saying. And I I know that seeing really good, meaningful, honest performances change my life. So So I know that Every time I get on stage, that possibility is there, not because I'm so great, just because performance can do that (laughs) to people. You see a really beautiful opera, you hear an amazing Mm -hmm. guitar riff, that has the opportunity to make something in your brain click, and you're Mm -hmm. a different person after that. So I think I overcame it just by doing it, right? I don't even know so much that I overcame it as I overcome it, if that makes sense. That every time I go in front of a microphone, I'm overcoming it. I'm working through it. And I think that's how-
0: You build confidence, right?
1: For sure. I mean, I'm confident in it. So maybe I should establish that. I'm very confident in myself as a public speaker, but I still feel that fear because you never know what's going to happen, very right? true. You could kill it. And I've seen this happen. You can kill a set, right? Whether this is singing, poetry, you know, any other form of music, and people just might not be into it.
0: Is that because it's subjective as to where the audience, you know, can, it's their opinion on whether or not you did well and you, all you can do is what you can do, right? All you can, all you control is what can, you can control.
1: For sure. Which is why to me, and this is just advice I give to any people that especially want to become spoken word poets. If you can't recite a poem while you're doing everyday activities. So for me, that's making breakfast and when I'm in the shower, those are my two tests for if something's memorized or not. Like if I can't make breakfast and spit a poem, it's not memorized. It's not off book yet. So I'm, I'm confident in myself as a performer, but even if you've got it memorized, even if you've run the poem by people, your friends have edited it, there's no guarantee that it hits. Also, There are poems that hit in certain rooms and don't hit in others, right? Very true. There are poems I could do at an academic conference that might kill and I'll perform it in a poetry slam, right? And people might say, uh. And the reverse is true. There are poems that will light up a poetry slam that you bring them into a, maybe an academic venue or you perform it for young people, right? So at this Very juncture true. in my career, quite often I'm actually reciting work for middle schoolers and high schoolers. And that's been a major change because in my early career, it was all college shows. I didn't have any gigs for middle schoolers. How would a middle school teacher know who I was, right? Yeah. During those college years, the YouTube videos that I put out where eventually, and this is, I mean, I was incredibly thankful for this. They were taught uh, to much younger children. Wow. And then that's been really the past five years, pretty consistently. Elementary schools, middle schools, high schools will bring me in to teach poetry to, to kids. And so you have to learn to, to be uh, dynamic and diverse with your material. And that's helped me too grow as a public speaker, is to say, I have a bunch of different directions, I can take it. If I see one thing isn't working, the academic stuff sort of isn't working, I have other muscles, right, that I can use. And I think anyone who's a performer, you have to develop those.
0: Yeah, definitely. I can firsthand uh, say that's true because your poems were taught in my middle school by my teachers. So right, right. And, right. It, and it's crazy that you don't even know where your poems are being led to. You know, your no poems way. are probably being taught at, like, places that you have no idea about, which is yeah, pretty no, crazy to think real. about. Yeah,
1: no, No, it's incredible. One of my friends, he sent me a facebook message i wanted to get the platform right because it wasn't a text he sent me a facebook message of his classroom in the philippines where he was playing wow. my video and it boggled my mind i mean when i had a manager still uh, my older sister she would show me the metrics from our facebook pages right mm-hmm. so i was a part of a, i started an organization with her called the strivers row yes in
0: definitely aware of that
1: yeah so she ran our metrics through facebook And I was seeing we had people watching our poems in South Africa, Iran, Great Britain, Australia, I mean, all across the world. And I'd never fathomed that, you know, that people even outside a room I might be performing in live would hear the poems, much less people on other continents, you know. But that's the reach, both of the Internet, but the reach of art in almost any era, you know, some stuff takes off and travels and you can't predict it.
0: That's got to be super humbling to see those type of numbers and see those type of places where it's where people are view, are viewing your videos. That's sure. crazy. Um, what is what are you? Would you have a certain process that you go through mentally before you do uh, do a public performance? Um, is there a certain like routine that you have um, that you can recommend to other people that might be scared of public speaking?
1: Yeah, for sure. I I mean, and I hope this isn't too repetitive, but I, I just run the poem. Again, one or two times that morning. I might even run through, I want to be honest here. I don't think I run through entire sets anymore. I would recommend that if you're starting off um, to know, have at least a general sense. If you're a poet, this is specifically for poets, have a sense of the order, right? That might change. And I would say, have a sense of the order so you can be open to change, Mm. right? I, I still do this every time I get up for a reading or performance. I have a general sense of the itinerary, like what poems I'm going to read and, and in what sequence. But if I'm seeing a particular type of poem isn't working, this is just the the entertainer in me, I'm going to switch out of that and try something else because it's just not as fun for me if it's not working.
0: Yeah, you know? just thinking and on I, your feet kind of, right? You have to.
1: I think any good performer, and I learned this maybe both from preachers and from jazz people, right? And from and from actors, you know, from, from the theater, you have to be able to improvise. If you're going to be great, I think, or I mean, who knows what I know about greatness, but I think you you have to be able to improvise for sure, because it'll open pockets in your work that you couldn't have imagined beforehand. I can't tell you the times that I've maybe forgotten a line in something, put in something new, and it just opened a different window in the poem. And then that'll become the line instead of the, the thing I forgot. Wow! <laughs> right. Or I'll just feel really maybe brash one day and I'll swap out part of a poem and I'll do something else just to see if it lands, you know, and how it lands. And that kind of experimentation is opened up by practicing a lot. So that's what I would say. Practice, practice, practice. Have people that love you enough to tell you when something isn't working, which isn't the same as it's not good, right? I think people understandably are scared uh, for people they care about or whose opinion they care about to tell them work isn't good there's a distinction between something being good enough and something that's just not working for a particular poem, right? I've had whole sections of work where really that just wasn't the beginning of that poem. It's the beginning of a poem, just not that one, right? Like that's not serving that particular piece. And that's been really helpful for me too. So those are the two things I would say. Practice a ton and create a community of listeners and editors, no matter what you do. If you make music, you sing, you dance, you need people to bounce ideas off of. If you're going to craft something you're putting online or putting in front of audiences on the regular.
0: Yes, 100%. I, I think we can all, we all have those friends that will tell you anything that you're doing is good. Kind of like how your mom is. She's just like, yeah. son, like I, it's, it's amazing no matter what you do, right? But yeah. I mean, it's important to have those people around you that are going to give you constructive criticism and taking mm-hmm. that and actually not getting hurt by it, but Implementing it into your work and uh, yeah, I, I agree 100% with you on that yeah. um, So you've performed at some pretty amazing venues events for some pretty amazing people I know you mentioned one of them that you mentioned earlier was at the White House for the White House Poetry Slam, right? Uh, or jam for President Obama uh, Talk about that experience and where does that rank on your best performances or top performances?
1: It's oh, a great question Sheesh. Uh, okay, so I'll talk about the experience first, then we'll go into the, the power rankings. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, it was I mean, life-altering, you know. I was a junior in college. It was spring, I believe. No, no, no. I was a so- No, I was a junior. I was a okay. junior in college, because I lived in Du Bois' college house <laughs> at Penn. <laughs> I remember where I was because I was studying for finals. And I got a phone call asking if I wanted to perform at the white house and one I said of course right then course, I literally man. did laps around my dorm like I ran downstairs was so hype I did laps around the dorm
0: just to and get the again, excitement out
1: I was just high. I'm from New York so you <laughs> know I don't know it might be like a cultural thing too I just ran I was like "Woo!" you know I was so because it's unbelievable like yeah. again so much of this I think is just being from Yonkers not growing up uh, with, with money or really access. And the idea that I was going to go perform a, one of my poems for, again, also the first black president, right? There was, it yes. was sort of like, and I just voted for it. Right. It was the first time I'd ever voted. I voted for Barack Obama and the idea that now I was being invited to perform at the white house was incredible to me. So I was just so excited. I had to run around a little bit, uh, <laughs> but then they gave me the specifics. They said, okay, we need a two minute poem on the theme of communication right and so then it got a bit more stressful so i was saying okay how much time do i have and i really only had i think about maybe a week and a half or so it might have even been less than that it wasn't two weeks i think it was less than two weeks and i had finals between.
0: too right
1: come on so i'm like, all right i have schoolwork, and you're telling me i have to either compose something completely new or edit an existing poem down to two minutes and then have it in performance shape not just for the stage, but for the White House, right? So that was super hectic, but some aspects of it were easy. So they asked me who my plus one was. It was my mom, just no doubt. So I get on, they, they you know, pay for my Amtrak to DC, and I'm standing at the front of the White House with the other poets from that evening, you know, Mido Del Viola, Jamaica Osorio, who now I think is a political scientist at the University of Hawaii, Esperanza Spaulding, Lynn manuel Miranda, James Earl Jones, Michael Chabon. It was this wild moment where we were all together because we had to go through a secret service, you know, security (laughs) clearance. And we had a a run through. Like we had a mic check basically (laughs) where we, a sound check rather where we, you know, tested the microphones and everybody ran through their thing. And so I performed it for that small group. That was the only rehearsal I had though. I performed the poem once for that group and got really great feedback from everyone. Everyone was very generous. And then me, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and James Earl Jones, we had like a freestyle cypher in the back of the White House. Wow. We got James on camera saying, Luke, I am your father. There's some old, you can ask Lynn about this. He okay. has some old like phone footage, it was incredible. And then I performed, you know, my mom was right there next to Joe Biden and you know, the, the Obamas. And, it it was incredible. I've never had an experience uh, quite like it. I had never had an experience like like it before and never really won exactly like it since. I mean, I was invited uh, by the Clinton Global Citizen Awards to perform. And so I got to like, I introduced Bill and and did some some poems there. Um, But there was nothing quite like that. Like the intimacy of the space, the fact that Spike Lee was there, Saul Williams was there. James Earl Jones did Othello, right? It like, There's a lot the of push. greatness
0: going on in that building. It was ridiculous.
1: <laughs> Lynn did the first public performance of what would eventually become Hamilton. Wow. Like he did the first number from Hamilton. You can see it on YouTube. That okay, night, he did, did the first number. It's incredible. And so, yeah, that was transformative. And after that was really, I would say, when my career, I was 19, you know, and that was when my career as a professional poet really started because after that was when I started charging to do shows and things like this. Um, because at that point I'd done the NAACP image awards. I did the white house. And then it was like, okay, maybe I should really think about this as a job and a way to gain, you know, financial uh, independence. So yeah. that was great. And I to have that on good. your
0: resume too, just yeah. <laughs> that's like top notch to have something yeah. on your resume like that.
1: It changed everything. Yeah. Cause I applied for fellowships and things like that. And, and it, you know, it made a huge difference. So um that was huge. I mean, that, I feel like that probably has to be number one, but two through five or so, I mean, we're pretty great. So, I mean, the NAACP Image Awards in no small part because I got to see Beyonce's soundcheck before we went up. This is 2009 NAACP Image Awards.
0: Oh my God.
1: Saw Halle Berry backstage, Diddy in the green room. It was just an incredible <laughs> night. Like that was ridiculous. Uh, and got to do sort of a group poem with uh, my friend Ben Swag and, and George Watsky. So that was pretty great. I had a show at Colorado College that I think had, no lie, 1,500 people at it. And, wow. and there's something quite, kind of surreal about doing a poetry set. And there's over 1,000 people. It, it was nuts. It was sorry, wild.
0: Sorry to uh, interrupt you. Does that take away the intimacy of it? or
1: Not for me. I, I was hyped. <laughs> this, is, this is amazing
0: yeah uh,
1: there, there is something about a small crowd though that's special but i think especially them, the way i did the shows was there was a, a level of showmanship to it where i feel like having the big crowd didn't subtract from it like our okay. biggest drivers road crowd was around that number uh and we had a show at stage 48 which is you know a concert venue and we packed it out over a thousand people tickets sold, we had signings and everything like that, uh, autographs and photos after. And I think doing shows at that scale is actually important for the genre, I think, to be completely honest. Like I know places like Button Poetry, like do stuff like that now. And I think there's something to it. Like the idea that you can put on a spoken word concert, I think hundreds to more than a thousand people will come out for that kind of stuff. And it becomes a way to elevate, not necessarily the art form as such, but it elevates what we can expect from the art form. Right. Right. What kind of poem do you have to perform to hit a thousand people in a room? And what does it mean to train yourself up to be able to do that? Um, I'm really thankful that I had to hone that skill, you know, in my twenties. I think it made a big difference.
0: That's, that's something that a lot of people don't think about. I think from the outside looking in Um, so that's interesting that you have that perspective on it, Um, transitioning a bit into your writing, how yep. long did you work on your debut book, uh, The Sobbing School?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the first poem, the oldest poem in The Sobbing School is from 2012. Okay. And I think the poem, I sent it off in 2015. So the last poems in that book, the most recent poems in that book, were written right before I sent it off in 2015. So really, it was completely composed between 2012 and 2015 that book. Okay. So about three years and then it came out in 2016.
0: So. Okay. What, it, what, it, what experiences uh, did you kind of take from that and apply mm-hmm. to your writing that you're doing right now for um, being property of oneself, right? That's your.
1: Yeah. Or being or property of myself. myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I mean, but the thing is, so this is interesting. So being property once myself started as my dissertation. So I yeah. actually wrote most of that book at the same time as the Sobbing School. Mm. So it's, it's interesting to me. And that book also started in 2012, really, when I was in a graduate seminar uh, on minstrelsy, actually. And we read this book by Charles Chestnut called The Conjure Woman. And there were all these stories in it where Black people were being transformed into animals, into golems, into trees. Wow. And I just kept thinking, what is this weird relationship to the environment that we're seeing expressed in these works? And can you find it elsewhere? Uh, And the answer was yes. And that's the argument of the book, really, is that what I'm calling the Black environmental imagination is something we can just trace throughout the history of African-American literature. And so I started writing that dissertation as a graduate student at Princeton at the exact same time that I was writing the Southern School. Um, And so now with my second book of poetry coming out, oh, that'll be out in September, that was a book that came out of the writing practices i learned from writing those first two books right where i had to every day you know try to get something on the page then when you have a wealth of material you can cut it down right to the i think this most recent book is maybe 39 poems 36 or 39 poems and you get it down to the stuff that works best together right you're trying to really capture a window in your life so that that really helped liberate me i think this idea that you don't have to get down every good idea you ever had. You really just want to do your best to capture the beauty of a specific moment in your life, because hopefully there'll be other books, right? You'll have other poems. And if you are writing a dad poem, for instance, right? Like that's not the last poem you're going to write about your dad. So for Brave New Voices, for example, I had that poem Carbon Copy about my father, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the central poems in this new book is a, a poem called America Will Be. Which was in uh, Best American Poetry this year, which also kind of blew my mind. But that's another poem about my dad. It's very different from Carbon Copy in some ways, but it's also, you know, sort of similar themes, right? Across the expanse of history, how can I relate to my father? You know, we're so different in so many ways. I went to private school and I'm a professor and like he integrated his high school and fought a war and worked, you know, a blue collar job for 40 years, you know? lifting bags of mail, you know, for 10 hours a day, running a Bible study, uh, being a deacon at a church, you know, very different sort of orientation to the world. Um, And my career as a poet in many ways can also be mapped through trying to figure out that relationship between me and my father and all of the various human beings in the world that are also trying to navigate um, that distance, right? How do we get closer to the people we love? Right. And how do we maintain whatever closeness
0: we have already? Yeah, I noticed he he's on the cover, right? Yeah.
1: Wow, you did your yeah, I'm telling you, man. I'm a
0: fan. You your work is amazing (laughs) and I'm on it.
1: (laughs) This man was on it. Yeah, that's me and him. Uh 1992.
0: What made you what made you choose that specific picture?
1: Uh all right, I'm gonna be honest with these. This is this is an exclusive. No, no other outlet has this. Um, (laughs) Okay. So I sent Penguin maybe seven options for the cover. And they loved that one. Like wow. I, I I liked that photo a lot, but I was open to other options. And they said, no, 100%, this is the one. And it was the only image I sent them that was of me. Like the rest of them weren't family photos, right? Like they were these right. sort of classical historical images for the most part, or else contemporary photos that I just found interesting. But that, that photo stuck out to me because of the intimacy. It's, it's like the way my father's holding me it's the way he's sort of looking at me. It's the way I'm looking right into the camera, right, and yeah. eating. What am I even eating? And that like cornbread, <laughs> collard greens. I mean, I'm I'm looking at. It. I'm like, why is a four year old eating this a like, huge plate of food? <laughs> that I was, and uh yeah, a lot of the book is about my relationship to him, but also because that title "Ode" is um, it's a play on words. So it's a play on "ode," o d e, right? The the form of poem. You know, it's often a a celebration but it's also about what's owed to my father and uh, people like him right it's about the legacy of reparations in this country but it's also about reparation as a concept how do yeah. we repair our relationships to each other right for people we've lost touched with people we've fallen out with um things about ourselves that we were raised to be ashamed of how do you repair that right becoming yeah. an adult at least as far as i can tell is in large part about repairing things that other people broke for you, right? Yes. Over the course of your growing up, you still yes. have to be responsible for it. You're gonna get to the end of your life and it's your responsibility. And this is sad, right? That, that's pretty tragic, actually. That so much of our adulthood is just repairing things that people destroyed in us and for us. Um, but nonetheless, I think that's the difficulty of being, right? So the Very book well said. is really about that. Yeah, the book is about that, about that, that striving.
0: Yeah, and it's 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 important to come to realization of that, I feel like, because it's easy to put that blame on somebody else um, yeah. rather than confronting it and overcoming. I feel like if you're constantly putting that blame on somebody else, you're never truly becoming who you can be, right? You're never really reaching your potential. So I think yeah. that's awesome. That cover looks like a Kendrick Lamar album cover. <laughs> Yay, that's
1: high <laughs> praise, man. I love the Kendrick co- Kendrick hasn't missed, I don't think, with a cover. Like, I think mm-hmm. the damn cover is okay but the rest of those covers are amazing and i actually don't mind if the damn cover is just okay because duckworth i mean that
0: duckworth, closing yeah. an
1: album i love that song that that's one of my is, favorite Kendrick songs you know
0: yeah definitely um so i know the book was slated to come out this year um mm-hmm. is it september? still is it, so it's going to come out in september uh yeah uh, september 1st september 4th.
1: 1st for old being Property Once Myself actually comes out next month, less than a month from now, May twelfth, that, okay. that book will be dropping. So be on the lookout.
0: That's uh that's good to hear that um everything that's going on isn't really affecting uh the drop date yeah. or anything. Yeah.
1: I mean we're we're hoping too, you know, that because right now Penguin is just sort of doing the, the digital thing, but print copies will be available in September. That's
0: okay.
1: The, that's the thinking.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'm gonna cop, cop thank a copy you. myself um oh, thank definitely you. uh does writing exhaust you or energize you
1: mm, energizes me
0: energizes you okay for sure
1: sometimes it can feel like a weight lifted depending on what i'm writing and how um but it always energizes me you know to give language to the air okay a beautiful thing
0: do you have a writing kryptonite at all
1: Ooh. i don't think so i hope to never discover it you know, mm. I don't. I don't. I don't want to know. Great answer. What, I, what force could stand in front of me in the page? That'd be devastating.
0: Do you think uh, somebody could be a writer without feeling emotion?
1: No. I mean, well, maybe you could. You could write something. I don't. I don't know how good the writing would be. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this Alfred North Whitehead essay called "The Aims of Education." And it opens, I don't wanna butcher it, but I think it's, um, he talks about culture basically being activity of thought is one phrase he uses. But also he says, receptiveness to beauty and humane feeling.
0: That okay. right?
1: that's what culture is. And that's the purpose of education, right? Is to teach us to be receptive to beauty and humane feeling, right? So to me, the best writing has to come from a place of some sort of emotional openness. Right, and I'm saying this as a as an academic too. I, I think the best academic writing for me bears the trace of of the work meaning something to the person composing it. Right. I think the right. more emotionally vulnerable we are, it opens us to new ways of thinking, and thus new ways of writing.
0: Okay, very well said. I agree. Um, so we're ending the near of our conversation, uh, but I wanted to get into one last segment. It's going to be a rapid what? fire segment. Yeah, Uh, so I'm gonna ask you five random questions and I want you to do your best to answer them in a 15 to 30 second time uh, time span for each question. Does that sound good?
1: Perfect, let's
0: do it. Awesome. All right, so first one is what are your morning rituals? What do and what does Mm. the first 60 minutes of your day look like?
1: Wow, uh, oatmeal recently didn't used to be used to be egg scramble and usually sort of salmon or i would make arepa from scratch now it's oatmeal morning ritual get up make breakfast talk to my fiance of course take apollo outside walk them feed them water uh and stack my books for the day whatever i'm reading for the day set it aside and that's
0: the ritual i love it uh, next question. Do you have a quote that you live by or um, think of often?
1: Ooh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's strange that this is the one that's coming to mind, but probably uh, James Baldwin's uh, when he's asked about pessimism and he says that he can't be a pessimist because who will tell the children there is no hope. Uh, I think I live by that.
0: You live by that okay great i know i know there's uh, i in one of your poems um your mother you said you you um one of your mother's poems also resonates with you that uh correct me if i'm wrong it's you said Mm -hmm. if you people treat you based off how you allow them to treat you right uh based on what
1: you accept from them
0: based on what you accept from them my mom wrote
1: that on our refrigerator when i was little yeah people treat you based on what you accept from them yeah i love
0: that one i love that that one hit hard definitely for me yeah yeah she
1: is bars. yeah (laughs)
0: she does have bars um how has failure or apparent failure set your life up for six for later success or do you have favorite a favorite failure of yours
1: Mm, man those are two such good and different questions uh i know what it's like to fall and to really be heartbroken and disappointed which is useful like i think once you've hit your bottom in life that sets a point for for comparison. That's useful. Right?
0: Okay.
1: So even when you feel pain later, you remember, and your body kind of physically remembers, right? Certain kinds of heartbreak. And so I'm I'm I've never said this before. I'm glad that I got my heart broken. It was devastated at various points in my life. When I was a kid, in my 20s, when I was in college, mm. feeling that helped me have a proper scale. I think at least for myself. What's my favorite failure getting a D on my first essay in high school because I'd never gotten that kind of grade on my writing before and it helped me realize I was one going to be held to a different standard from that point on and it taught me not to be too cocky and that there was a difference between confidence and cockiness
0: okay a humbling experience or humbling failure
1: 100% and I thought they were going to throw me out of school I was on a scholarship and that so, <laughs> D yeah, Dude, I was on a scholarship, an academic scholarship okay. in high school. And the first letter grade I ever got on an assignment was a D in World oh Civilizations. I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen a grade like that in my oh, life. Man. I was 14 years old and uh, it changed everything.
0: Okay. Uh, next question. What is the most worthwhile investment that you've made? Um, it could be an investment of money, time, energy, or another resource.
1: The most worthwhile investment I've made. Oh, it's in love. In love, okay. Yeah, yeah. I think in particular with my older sister, like the time that I've invested over the course of my life in collaborating with her, listening to her, learning from her. My sister also taught me how to read, write, walk, and talk. That's important. Then she became my manager and built the Strivers (laughs) Row. And... Watching her become a parent and be a married person, I think has very much prepared me for the other major love investment I've made, which is in my fiance, which I think every day just forces me to be a less selfish uh, person, to be more careful with my language Um, and to realize that my life is fundamentally like not about me
0: in ways that are important. That was actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to spin off and ask another question because I forgot to ask this earlier. How, have your priorities changed from your early 20s to where you're at now?
1: <laughs> Completely. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> Completely. Uh, so much now for me is about laying the foundation to have a family, one. Um, so to have a legacy in different ways. I only thought about my legacy as a writer in my 20s. My entire life was about being the most Uh, gifted writer possible it was also about creating opportunities for other writers I've always tried to take that very seriously that I wanted with whether it was with the strivers row or various kinds of um, academic projects I was working on I wanted to create space for young writers and writers from historically marginalized communities uh, to express themselves that was always important for me that's still a priority but I think having done that in my 20s I realize now that I have to make space. just for my personal life in, in different ways. Like I have to invest in that. I have to go to therapy. I have to uh, exercise. I have to have regimens to be alive for a long time um, because my hope is that there'll be, you know, small people depending on me. I'm marrying someone and mm-hmm. I have a responsibility to her to be my best self and to be well, you know, yeah. uh, both in body and in mind. So that, that's a complete priority shift from when I was in my 20s and I just wanted to be fly
0: just just the fact that you're like living for somebody else at this point now Mm -hmm, for sure
1: and for my goddaughters and for my nieces and nephews and my students i mean it's a complete sort of 180 it's a real shift
0: okay uh when when you think of the word successful Mm. who's the first person that comes to mind and why
1: huh it was two people which is interesting um It was my mother and my grandma. And it's because I think they both, I think my grandmother did what she set out to do. And I think my mother is doing what she set out to do. And there are also things I heard my mother say she was going to do when I was young that she has since accomplished. And I think that's probably one of the greatest barometers for success. Can you measure the distance, one, from where you started to where you ended up, right? And are you happy with that distance? Even if it wasn't some amazing sort of upward trajectory, right? Are you happy with it? Right is one. And two, did you follow through on your dreams? Which doesn't mean you got them all, but did you attempt them? My mother mm-hmm. strikes me as someone that in, in various ways was willing to say, um, I'm not gonna compromise on particular dreams. And she did not compromise on the dreams of her children either, which I think is miraculous and is something that I, I truly admire. Cause it's hard enough to live for yourself, to live for someone else and to dedicate your every day to feeding me, dressing me, bathing. I mean, I'm just starting to think about the rhythm of that, right? Even just having a puppy, I had to really, (laughs) I had to wake up super early. I had to feed him all the time. I had to train him not to pee in the house. I mean, all this, I was like, man, I have to think about you every day. I can't gig anymore unless someone's here to take care of you. I have to vet the people that take care, and this is like my companion animal, you know. So, yeah, my mom and my grandmother alike, they had good, full dreams, um, and they achieved them. And even the ones they couldn't grasp, they gave it their all. And to me, that's that's success.
0: You know? Yes, definitely very admirable. When are you going to run for president? Dr. Bennett, we need oh, you right a, I'm now. A, I'm
1: alright. That that seems man. I saw what happened to, to Bernie, man. I'm alright. I, 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 I feel like some of the stuff he wants. It's like, yeah, people should have free, you know, college. I don't know. Uh, I'm alright. I, I may do <laughs> office one day. I don't know. I've been thinking about local office maybe eventually, but for right yeah. now, I'm just really happy. I just want to, you know, be a, a good husband, professor, writer, thinker. And um, I'm honored, though. If I have your vote, you know, I'll, I'll consider it. <laughs> we'll go back to the drawing board.
0: Okay, fair enough. Your, your priorities can always change, but I think you're great at everything that you just said right now. So you're on the right path for sure, at least that means in lot. my opinion. Definitely. Well, Dr. Bennett, uh, this concludes the podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Um, but before Woo. I end this, I want to roll the red carpet out for you. Um, can you let the people know what you have going on and uh, sure. what they can look forward for, look forward to from you?
1: Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I got two books coming out. One is Being Property Once Myself with Harvard University Press that's dropped in May 12th. And then I have a new book of poems, Ode, which will be out from Penguin Books September 1st, 2020. And uh, yeah, just be on the lookout for both. You can check out my website, uh, www.drjoshuabennett.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Sir Josh Bennett. And just be on the lookout. There's a lot of good stuff in the works.
0: Definitely. I'm excited for all of it, Um, Dr. Bennett. Thank you once again. Stay safe out there, and we'll Thank look you. forward to your next book.
1: Thank you, brother. Same. No this is one of the best interviews of all time, man. Well done.
0: That's going to wrap it up for another episode of Ambience Podcast. If you made it through to the end of the episode, man, you have no idea how much I appreciate that. If you enjoyed the episode, please tell a friend. Um, let us know on social media. We're on Instagram at creative underscore ambience. We're on Twitter at Collective AMB and we're on YouTube under Ambiance. So please, please, please hit us up and let us know. Also, we are consistently dropping content on our social media channels, um, whether it's a podcast or it's the vlogs. We got lots of stuff going on. And in the near future, we have some pretty exciting stuff that we are going to be releasing. So make sure to follow us to make sure that you do not miss out. So, once again, we thank you for tuning in. I hope you walk away with a newfound sense of inspiration, motivation, and growth, and a new idea that you can share with your friends, family, and implement in your own lives. And as always, continue doing what you love, pursue your ambitions, and never, never take no for an answer. This is Levi checking out for Ambiance Podcast. Peace.